Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a TVO podcast. I'm Colin Ellis, and you're listening to On Docs, a podcast about documentaries and the stories they tell. Today, I'm speaking with filmmaker Lulu Wei about her latest doc, There's No Place Like This Place, Any Place, which examines what happens to a community when a landmark is torn down and developers come in. What happens at this corner will impact our neighborhood for the next hundred years. We don't want to see developers get their way. These fights happen every generation, and this is apparently going to be ours. There's whole histories, community histories, that are completely tied to this exact intersection. We have to be like a writer approaching a blank page. We just have to start with the first word, act one, scene one. That's how we got to approach gentrification. If you've ever been to the Annex neighborhood in Toronto, there's a good chance you might remember Honest Ed's. Its over-the-top sign dominated the intersection of Bathurst and Blur, but inside it held a treasure trove of goods that served the community around it. But it was more than just a store. Honest Ed's was a place where people went to get lost and even get married. We arranged for them to have their ceremony in the parking lot of Honest Ed's. The bridesmaid and the bride came up from the underground parking. It's just so beautiful seeing her come up and him playing the guitar in front of Anastas receiving and parking lot. <laughs> it was really cute. Go on to Google Maps today and all you can see are cranes. Vancouver-based West Bank Group spent three years in consultations with the community around the former site of Anastas and Mervish Village. Their finalized proposal was to develop a series of buildings that would preserve the historical character of the area while providing affordable rents. But as we soon discover in the dock, affordability can be a pretty loaded term. In our conversation with Lulu Wei, we get into Toronto's affordable housing crisis, what the developers have planned for the site, and what the community around Honest Ed's thinks about the project. Stay with us. Lulu Wei, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me and for talking about the film. Well, I don't know how many people outside of Toronto know about Honest Ed's and Mervish Village. So could you just tell our listeners a bit about its history? Um, so Honest Ed's was um, a amazing landmark in Toronto. Uh, it was a discount store that was started by um, Ed Mervish. And it was sort of like a beacon for um, the immigrant community and the working class. And it grew to be... Um, this sort of like a kitschy uh, place with like amazing slogans and signs that everyone was drawn to go to. Here in Toronto, there's a famous man, but this guy must be insane. His prices are so low, any day he'll be broke. Honest Ed is his name. He sells pins and needles. I started up here in a small little place about the size of a living room. We had a gimmick. The customer named the price, and no reasonable offer was refused. Um, and Markham Street, which was part of, like, Mervish Village, um, it was supposed to be 
like a parking lot uh, because Honest Ed's got so busy. But in the end, um, they turned it into an artist colony um, hmm. and it had subsidized rents. And so a lot of different artists and like restaurants and, and bookstores um, had amazing spaces there. Um, and I think it lasted for, I think, probably around 70 years. And the neighborhood, I guess it changed a lot in in the time that it was run. I mean, it's basically in the, in the annexed neighborhood of Toronto, which is, I guess, you know, downtown Toronto. Um, I mean, it, it was, you know, working class immigrant families that I guess would, uh, congregate there or meet there. And, uh, I guess, I guess since that, since it began, it, the neighborhood's seen a lot of changes, right? Yes. Um, I think, you know, the, there's a great history of the black community at Bloor and Bathurst. Um, mm-hmm. and over time they sort of moved North, um, but there's still businesses there, um, before the redevelopment and there's still some businesses there, uh, as of right now as well. Yeah. Well, one of the things I loved about shopping there was, uh, you know, there's, there's these great signs, uh, one of them that would say, uh, you know, come in and get lost and you would literally get lost when you were in there. Right. Like I, I would walk through, I would, I would always lose my, my bearings when I was in there. And then, you know, you end up looking for clothes and then you find yourself in kitchenware, like then you find yourself in the food aisle. (laughs) It's just like, it was just so massive and it was such a great place to go take, take, um, to just browse through because, uh, you could literally find almost anything there. Right. Mm-hmm. It was, it was just like the place to get all of your, your needs, like all of your, your things that you would need for your home. Um, and when I lived right beside it, I used to get stuff from there all the time. Yeah, that's right. You, you lived on Bathurst, right? Like, right. Mm-hmm. Basically. Yeah. So what, how, how did you uh, end up living there? Um, it was actually the first place that me and my partner, um, moved into together. Um, we had just been looking online and we found the apartment there. And so it was a really nice apartment and like, it wasn't, you know, that terrible price wise. So that's, that's how we moved in. And how did you, I guess, feel when you heard that Honest Eds had been sold? Well, I mean, I think that, um, like we knew that it had been sold, but I don't think it really clicked in until like everything started closing. Um, cause it had been, it had a very long, like closing almost in that it got sold three years before it actually closed. Um, and so I think it wasn't until we saw stuff like shutting down that it was like, Oh wow, this is like actually happening. Yeah. I think David Mervish, who is the uh, owner and obviously the son of uh, Ed Mervish said he didn't want to, uh, just sell it off, like give it two weeks and then kind of kick mm-hmm. everyone off. I, I mean, I, I, could you just talk a bit about like, I guess how, what kind of send off, uh, he gave to honest heads. Could you talk a little bit about, yeah, just sort of what, uh, he did to sort of, uh, mark the closing of it. Um, well, I mean, I guess like, you know, it was really awesome to have so many years, especially I think for the people on Markham street to sort of try and figure out what they were going to do next. Um, and like on the last day I was there filming and, you know, it was the end of the the sign sale and everybody was like pretty sad. And then you saw like the lights go off inside. Um, and I think they had a bunch of things that they did, 
um, throughout the years before it closed. Um, uh, definitely a, a lot of the sign sales. Um, and then I remember they had um, Toronto for Everyone did did like an event in the springtime, which I I couldn't like include in the film, but um, but that yeah. was like a a cool send off too. Did you get a sign? Um, I did get a sign. I got a bunch of signs and actually, um, in the feature version of the film, um, Dougie Kerr, who is one of the sign painters, he actually paints, uh, our credits. So he does a credit sequence for us. So yeah, so it was amazing to get to go and film with him and get to like talk to him about what it was like working at the the store for so many years and, and actually getting to watch him paint, you know, like the title of our film and then like, you know, like painting like a film by and, and all that. So it was really cool. Well, I guess we should just uh, talk a bit about the the company that, you know, is uh, developing uh, the site around Honest Ed's. Uh, they're called West Bank. Can you just tell us a bit about them? Um, so West Bank is a luxury developer from Vancouver. Um, and I, think that they have done mixed use uh, rental buildings before in other places, but um, I think that they also do a lot of condos um, and they, they were the ones who bought the site from uh, the Mervishes. And I guess what do they have planned? Like what's in store for the, um, that site? I mean, I've walked past it. I was actually just there uh, not too long ago, a few days ago, and it uh, looks like it's, it's, you know, you're starting to see a, a new building uh, form. Uh, what, what are kind of their hopes for the project, I guess? Um, I think there's going to be quite a few individual uh, buildings there. Um, I think the highest one is going to be 26 stories. Um, and there's another one that'll be like 13. Um, and it's going to be mixed use. So it'll be all rental with um, like commercial space as well. And I think there's like a park and um, some other amenities planned. One of the issues that the film uh, gets into is uh, affordable housing. You know, a lot of the businesses that were in Mervish Village, you know, they they had a pretty uh, good deal on rent. Um, I think you said that, you know, when you were living there, the the rent wasn't uh, too bad, I guess, compared to other Toronto uh, or rather places in Toronto that, uh, you know, Rent, rent in this city hasn't exactly been cheap over the years, but um, I, I wonder if you could just tell us a bit about like, how do you, I guess, first define affordable housing, uh, first of all? Um, well, that's, I think, one of the issues about affordable, inaffordable housing is the fact that there's no, like every sort of, um, like the city has a definition of affordable housing, but I think like um, federally, there's like a definition of affordable housing and like different cities around the world have different definitions of affordable housing. Um, and so the city of Toronto's definition of affordable housing is that it's 80% average market rate or rent kind of thing. Um, and that is defined by the Canadian Mortgage Housing Corporation. Um, and that's like based on this average. So it's technically actually lower than um, what you would see if you just went on like view it or Padmapper and, and we're looking in downtown Toronto, but mm. that's still like not very affordable for a lot of people. Um, but later on um, in the future version, uh, which is 
you know, 30 minutes longer than the CBC version. Um, and that one we show that, um, I guess what affordable housing is defined as for <laughs> new units, um, in the development, it's defined as 30% of the Toronto median income, uh, which divided by 12 would be $2,000 a month for a unit, which is even less affordable because if you're making minimum wage, then you wouldn't even be able to afford one of those affordable units. Hmm. Well, has affordability, has the affordability issue gotten a little better because of um, COVID? I've, I've noticed rents have come down uh, a little bit uh, in Toronto. Um, I, I don't think it's at 2000 uh, anymore. Um, I know, and I know this film was obviously shot before uh, the pandemic, but has that changed things for the better? Um, well, the $2,000 a month, that's a specific, uh, that's based on the Toronto median income. So that's how they're calculating um, a bunch of these units uh, like that are going to be considered affordable. So hmm. it doesn't really matter, I think, how the market fluctuates. If it's based on the median income, then it'll always be based on on whatever people are making, which you think would be a good thing. But because it's the median income, it's a lot higher than, you know, half of what people make in, in the city. Um, but yeah, I mean, I haven't, luckily I haven't had to look uh, around for a new apartment and hopefully my <laughs> new landlords won't be selling their place. Um, but I think that uh, because of COVID, I'm sure some of the prices have gone down a little bit, but at the same time, I have a lot of friends who've been looking and I think it's still quite high. Um, mm. And so, and I think, you know, like what is affordable, um, it's sort of, differs because some people might think that, you know, like $1,800 is affordable or $1,500 is affordable, but a lot of people would also like not think that or be able to afford that. I guess it all depends on what kind of job you have and if you even have a job. Uh, and certainly the pandemic has uh, hurt a lot of people in that, in that regard. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the community. Um, you know, I, I think I mentioned to you, I, I recognize someone in the film who uh, my, uh, my dad is friends with. And um, I guess we sort of talked about this in the beginning, but like, you know, just who are some of the people that I guess you uh, profile in the film uh, that kind of make up uh, uh, the residents of Mervish Village? Um, so um, two people in the film that are just amazing people. Um, one is Aita Sadu, and she owns a different book list, um, the bookstore and a different book list cultural center because they're becoming a cultural center or rather they already are a cultural center. Um, and so I follow um, her story. Um, they've been on Bathurst Street for over um, 20 years and then they actually have to move. And so, uh, they were luckily able to move across the street. Um, and then, you know, later on in the film, you find out that they get to move into like a permanent space, which is really amazing. Um, and just like seeing her overcome, um, you know, displacement is so amazing. She's such a powerful, strong, um, speaker and person and just like is so uplifting and I just want to talk to her every day because <laughs> she's so amazing <laughs> um, and just getting to follow her story was just really 
incredible and to have her share it with me was was really great and I'm glad that I was able to document it and that it'll go into you know an archive of sorts because it's I think it's really hard to find archival footage of marginalized and BIPOC folks um Mm. like we have some archive uh from Lauren Bathurst from like I think the 70s and then we are like the 80s and we found some other footage um, of the community as well. But it took so much digging through like microfiche to find like any information. And then we had to go get um, 16 millimeter film digitized. And so I just feel like um, it's great to actually get to like document and archive this to be accessible later on for people to see like the black community at Bloor Bathurst and, and see their resilience. Yeah. I just want to mention for anyone that isn't aware, BIPOC stands for Black Indigenous People of Color. Just want to make sure people uh, know what that acronym stands for. Um, I, I used to hang out actually at a different book list when I was in high school because I went to Harvard, which is a uh, few blocks away from uh, from where a different book list was. And I don't think Aita was the owner back then. It was someone else. But uh, I absolutely loved uh, going there. And, you know, my parents, I think I was telling you earlier, just uh, they actually go there uh, before the pandemic started. They were going there every week for these uh, social gatherings for seniors. And uh, it really is like a great community hub. And I'm, I'm really glad that she's able to uh, keep that, uh, keep that going. Yeah, it, it's amazing. And I, I mean, I won't give it away. Everybody has to watch the film, but it's <laughs> just course, like yeah. amazing where um, like the space ended up and I'm super excited to like go back and get to visit that building again. And, um, and Gabor was the other, um, person from Markham Street from Verdish Village that I got to follow and he's 86 now and he's hmm. just so passionate about um, painting and like what he's doing and he you know I didn't include it in the film but he was telling me how he actually wanted to like die on the street like he wanted to oh. he took <laughs> like daily naps and he was like one day I just wanted to like fall asleep like peacefully on my little like couch in my gallery studio and and have someone find me but um (laughs) but he's just such a a amazing um person and it's great to see someone who's older who is still so passionate about what they're they're doing um and uh i just went and visited him social socially distanced um a couple months ago and um it was really nice to to get to see him again yeah what, what I, I always loved going to suspect video and um, obviously video stars. Uh, well, I don't think if they exist, there's probably maybe one or two left. But um, what happened to those guys? Um, I think suspect ended up they said they were going online, but I, oh. I'm not actually sure how how it's all happening or how they're doing. Um, I think one of the really sad things that happened um, and I mean, I didn't include Southern accent in the film, but I did interview Francis, the owner, um, was that, um, they were on the street and, you know, they were really, they had a really kitschy, wonderful, um, space and it had so much character and the food was delicious. And then, um, I know that she wanted to retire, but like, you know, you can't sell a business if it doesn't physically exist. Um, Hmm. so they ended up moving to college in Ossington, Um, but during the pandemic, they actually had to close for good. Um, so I'm really sad to see, see them go. I like this interview you did with 
uh, I think his name is Brandon, who's yeah, uh, the, Brandon. the construction company. Yeah, yeah could you just uh, just tell his story because he had a really interesting take on all, all this. Um. Yeah. No. It was really. It was really great. Like I would just go and film the demolition like every day I became kind of obsessive with filming the demolition because it looked like this like weird choreographed dance of like giant dinosaurs and 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 things tearing apart uh honest eds and so um <laughs> the more I went there the more I just like befriended a bunch of the the construction um demolition guys and they're all really nice and like Brandon would just like explain how the process went and it was actually really great to chat with them because it's like they were doing their job. Um, and it's not like they were there making the decision about, you know, what was being demolished. Like, you know, they're just doing their job. And mm -hmm. I felt really bad for him. Cause you know, he'd say like people would like sometimes like bike by and like yell at them and like, um, say mean things to him and stuff. Um, <laughs> and, you know, he shared like a wonderful story that's in the film that, you know, his parents used to go to Honest Ed's as like Portuguese immigrants. And, you know, he says that like now he has to tear down his parents' memories. And I was like, mm. oh, that's so heartbreaking. But, um, he, you know, he was just so nice. And it was like great to get that perspective of, you know, someone who is working on on that side. And it's not like, you know, he probably wanted to tear it down, but like that was just his job kind of thing. Tearing down a landmark in Toronto is a huge, huge thing. Not a lot of people are happy about it. So it makes it harder to do our job because everyone's upset with us. The older generation, like around my parents' age, a lot of them are in tears because they can't believe like it's this is happening. Because when my parents were growing up as kids and when my dad came here from Portugal, they couldn't afford anything. So Honest Ed's, they always used to come here, buy their clothing, buy food, buy everything because it was affordable. And now it's like what my dad came to and what he did when he was a kid, now I'm taking down my dad's memories too. You can't pull it because the Portuguese built it, that's why it's solid. With COVID, you know, our, our ability to congregate has, has kind of changed, you know, I mean, we can't really gather in groups. And um, I guess I wonder just how this pandemic, how do you think it affects communities engagement? Because I mean, there is a lot of community consultation in the film uh, about what uh, they want to see happen with the site. But I guess I wonder how the pandemic affects all that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, like all the community consultation is, is done, like they got their rezoning application approved. Um, and so I think, you know, like I was part of this construction, co uh, committee and they've since ended up moving like online sort of thing. Um, but I think, you know, the pandemic may really makes a lot of us question like what buildings will be left after this, like what businesses will actually still be around, like what um, parts of the city that we actually feel like, you know, make the city um, interesting and give character to the city, like what um, parts of that will even be left over after the pandemic is over. And, and I honestly don't know, like, you know, one of my favorite bars, like the Beaver had to shut down and 
Um, you know, there's a lot of like queer bars that are struggling to stay open, like Glad Day. And I don't know if they'll exist after the pandemic is over. Um, and that makes me really sad. And then um, I know like, you know, Sneaky D's, the development proposal was announced for that. And so I think, you know, a lot of spaces that make up the city, um, you know, I don't know what's going to happen to them. And I think it's a feeling that I know a lot of my friends have is just like what's happening to our city and will we be able to recognize our city, you know, in 10 years? I don't know if you can answer this question, but, you know, I couldn't help but think what might ha- what Ed Mervish would have to say about um, just the changes that I guess that neighborhood is, has, uh, has gone through. Um, have you given any thought to that? If he was around, you know, what would you have liked to have asked him? Um, I mean, if he was around, I would have loved to ask him, like, how was he able to keep, you know, the, everything going for as long as he did? And how did he, um, you know, get Mervish Village to be what it was? Um, and I guess I would ask, what would his plans be for like revitalizing the area because you know as David Mervish says in the film um you know like Honest Eds wasn't doing very well at the end um because of like Amazon and online shopping and Walmart and like Dollarama um but and and I think at the same time a lot of people who um really were going to Honest Eds regularly they probably were pushed out into the suburbs because it's too expensive to to shop or to live downtown. Um, so I would ask, you know, like, how would you revitalize Honest Ed's and, and the area? And I, I'd want to know what he would have wanted to do with it because he was really a, a amazing businessman. And I feel like he always had these amazing ideas. And um, Franca, who is she, that like her only job had ever been to work for the Mervishes. She's in the film and she knows Honest Ed so well. And she used to work with Ed. Um, she said that like, she just had all these amazing stories about him and it was great to get to interview her and, and talk about um, Ed with her and the store. And I feel like he, he would have a good solution. <laughs> he would, he would <laughs> have some sort of uh, thing to revitalize it. Yeah, we definitely need uh, pioneers like him around, I think. Yeah, but I think it's really up to us as, like, uh, you know, Torontonians or, like, um, you know, concerned citizens um, in in that we need to, like, sort of speak up to politicians and let people know, like, what kind of city we want to live in because really, like, a lot of it with affordability and redevelopment and all that, it's, like, a political issue. And so... I think if we're unhappy, we, we should voice it and we should figure out how to organize and, and change things because I don't want to sit around and see, you know, our city become less and less affordable and inaccessible. Um, and I don't want to get pushed out of our city either. And so I think a lot of us just want to know, like, what can be done <laughs> to, yeah. to do something about all of this. And that's the podcast. There's no place like this place, any place, will be available to stream on CBC Gem November 14th. If you liked what you heard, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and better yet, tell a friend. 
If you want to get in touch, you can write to us at ondocs at tvo.org. And you can also follow me on Twitter at ColinEllis81. Thanks to producer and editor Matthew O'Mara, production support coordinators Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hollowell, series producer Katie O'Connor, and executive producer for digital Laurie Few. We'll catch you at the next screening.